welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff is an occasional podcast about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined as always by Jason Snell. It's good to be occasionally back. Stephen, hello. How are you? We're back. This is like the report you give your class at the beginning of the school year. Like, what'd you do this mm. summer? It's kind of what oh. we're doing today. But it's still it's still summer. Yeah, my kids go back to school in two weeks. It's it's oh, almost over. Yeah, I guess so. My my kids don't go back to school for many months now because you know, okay, two months, two months. But that's that's college for you. That's college for you. We're here, Stephen, mm-hmm. because of the 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 great uh, space telescope, James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, it when we last uh, well not the last time but one of the times we came back we talked about uh it launching and uh it made its way to its place and it cooled down and it opened up and it started doing imaging and the first images were released earlier this month uh, from the JWST uh so that was like our motivation and and it took a it took a few weeks because I was doing stuff and you were doing stuff for us to find a day where we could uh pop open the hatch sure and <laughs> climb back into the rocket ship and talk about yeah some space stuff you know these these first images were really one of those moments i, I really picked up on it where people i know or follow online or you know friends and family were like really tuned in into what was going on in the space world including people that like no idea what this telescope was learned about new pictures and a new telescope basically at the same time but these images were just everywhere, and they are completely breathtaking. Yeah, it. this is, I, I think, really well handled by NASA and its partners in, as we talked about for hundreds of, or 100 plus episodes of Liftoff, part of the job is to show the taxpayers that they are getting their money's worth. Mm-hmm. And that means it's basically PR is part of the job. And so for something like this, which is, could be viewed as being kind of esoteric science it is important to kind of put this project in context where beyond the story of like it cost 10 billion dollars and all of that which also compared to other government expenditures right fighter jets and things like that you could do that i think people get a have an out i think it's been proven people have an outsized view of how what percentage of the federal budget nasa uses it's very small oh yeah but but this is something where you can you can orchestrated and say you know you get that that the hubble space telescope had a lot of pictures that blew you away and so they planned to do this where they're going to do these initial shots and they were going to do a big release and it was going to kick off the science of the jwst but also be this thing that would uh capture people's imaginations and i think they did a good job i think i I, I do laugh because it's very clear that they had this very carefully pla- planned out where they had the five things they were going to talk about and they were going to release them on like a Friday. And uh, and then like a couple days before, they're like, uh, one of them will be released Thursday night with Joe Biden. Yeah. Uh, which was very <laughs> clearly, very clearly that probably uh, the NASA administrator and the White House had one of those like uh can we can we get this in the white house can we can we uh mm-hmm. we, we kind of want to lead on this one and you're like all right okay i mean we just spent months planning the rollout of the uh, fine okay and so so they they did the kind of awkwardly staged because i think it happened at the last minute uh yeah. rollout of that of that uh, first deep field image um 
but it was it's also funny because it's literally an image from a telescope and different parts of the US government are kind of jockeying over who gets to who gets to be bathed in the glory of it. I mm-hmm. think that's kind of cool. It it is cool and there's a lot of glory to be bathed within. I mean I think that's that's one reason that people out in the world latched onto is that these images are images are incredible and they did this thing comparing what James Webb can see to things that Hubble has imaged over the years. And of course the difference is, is just unbelievable. I think it's also interesting. And we're gonna go through and talk about these images, the variety of images that were shown off, you know, in this initial batch kind of showing the different types of things that this telescope is going to be able to do. And, and even in the time since these, you know, seeing some, some early images of, of objects in, in our own solar system, including Jupiter, kind of flexing the muscles of what this thing is going to be able to do. And what's exciting to me is this is just the very beginning. And as scientists get better at processing this data, and as this data is in the hands of more people, we're going to just see increasingly amazing things, I think. This is... Uh... I mean, we saw it with the Hubble. That's the, that's part of it too. So they so they do this Hubble. The, the Hubble Deep Field is famous, and, and for those who don't remember, I mean, they they basically on on somebody's I don't want to say whim, but somebody had the idea like, what if we point Hubble at this dark region of space that doesn't seem to have anything in it and do a, essentially a bunch of shots and a very, very long exposure. And it's the famous Deep Field, which is it turns out that in that empty space, there's actually um, thousands of far off galaxies so mm-hmm. dim that we couldn't see them but with the hubble we could finally see them so for th- very memorable so for this they decided to do a deep field similar kind of thing but they chose i mean but it's it's called the first deep field right because the idea here is that web the web uh, telescope jwst can do this all day yeah, <laughs> like it, yeah. Can, <laughs> it, it can it can it can do this so this they're like yeah we, we did that Remember when Hubble blew you away? Well, JWST, we just did that uh, just for fun, for funsies. And this is only the first one, and there'll be more. And it is a, a remarkable image because it is like the the Hubble deep field, but, you know, more. And it is first because they said we're going to do more and more of these. Uh, and I think they said it's a, basically a grain of rice or a grain of sand held at arm's length. Uh, that's the that's the size of the patch of sky that this is that this shot is in, and it is it is mind blowing because it's just there are some stars in the foreground, but it's like it's galaxies with galaxies behind them with galaxies behind them. Every galaxy has millions of stars in it. Going back further and further, um, it contains potentially some of the oldest galaxies ever seen, things from 200 million years after the Big Bang, possibly. Um, and so that teaches us things about the universe and how the universe got started. And then the thing that blows me away is that you can also see the the gravitational lensing, right? There's like almost mm-hmm. a visible bubble of gravitational lensing from from matter that's between us and these objects where you've got these stretched out galaxies that probably are not shaped like that, right? Their light has been distorted by mass distorting the light in the foreground between it get between it and when it gets to our our eyes or to, to JWST. And then you even see those, like those round things where it's probably like the same galaxy, but distorted in a couple of different ways and sort of flattened and, and turning into a trail. And you you see some of those in there too. It's just like, fo- again, like a barrel distortion, like some of some kind of uh, photo lens distortion, except the lens in this case is, uh, is gravity from, uh, 
objects between us and them uh, distorting the path of the light. It's wild. Yeah, that jumped out at me as well. You know, we've spoken about that in terms of finding exoplanets. because That's one way you can uh, potentially like see what's going on as the as light shifts in their gravitational wake. But this is like the clearest example of like you can just see it happening in the image. And it's so hard to describe and talk about. I remember when we covered it, I sort of struggled to explain it. And now you like look at this part in this image and you can you can actually see this effect. Yeah. And I, I think one of the most interesting things about uh, all of this is that James Webb was conceived and designed before exoplanet exploration was really a thing. Right. Right. Really, that's happened in the last five years where there's just right. this explosion yeah. of discoveries. Yeah. And and now we have this new tool that wasn't designed with that in mind, but is going to be, by all accounts, uh, pretty successful at locating more of these things. Yeah. So it's 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 not just even locating. Uh, so the exoplanet story, right? So it's not just even locating, but it's also getting more information about them. So they targeted one of their one of these targets. These first targets was WASP ninety six B, which was a known confirmed exoplanet. Um, although even just that, like the light curve, which is literally the, the star that it's orbiting, um, WASP-96, presumably, it dips down a little in brightness and then and then pops back up. Um, and that's something that's how they found all those exoplanets. That's what, what you do. But like the a work that goes into that of getting a few readings from, uh, from Kepler or some other uh, telescope to say... Oh yeah, we've got enough readings that we can process it and intuit that this is a an exoplanet. Mm-hmm. And then you just see the light curve from JWST, and the people involved in exoplanets. I was watching on my science Twitter. Um, they're like laughing about the precision of it because they're like, "Yeah, uh, I guess so." Because where before it was sort of like, "Well, there's two dots over here, and then there's like a dot on the slant and a dot toward the bottom, and then another dot up, and then we're back to no more eclipse of the star." by the planet that was how it was discovered and then you see the jwst data and it's like dot 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 going down 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 bottom back up back up and now flat again it's like so many data points where where it confirms the discovery but it's hilarious that jwst is like oh yeah that's an exoplanet sure and then on top of that they get a spectrum which is uh which is literally they are looking at the light that is passing through the atmosphere of the planet from its star and by putting that on a spectrograph you and seeing what uh lines are there and not there you can get an idea because that's how spectrographs work of the composition of in this case the atmosphere of the exoplanet which is what they did with wasp 96b again just as a test for a first (laughs) announcement for funsies they did this uh, and so the, the, um, there's water vapor. It's a hot Jupiter, right? It's like, it's like half the mass of Jupiter, but it's bigger than Jupiter. Cause it's a close to the star puffed up big ball of gas. Uh, but they, they basically saw, you know, it's not with a picture, but with the spectrograph water vapor in the atmosphere of this gas giant orbiting very close to its star. And that's just 
the beginning. So it's not just like finding exoplanets because they're everywhere, right? But it's also uh, more detailed observations. Um, I'd imagine another thing that they haven't talked about, but th there have been uh, real efforts to image exoplanets, and that's something that JWST should be able to participate in as well. Uh, so there's going to be a lot for a thing that, as you pointed out, was not really on the agenda when the JWST was conceived. It is going to be uh, a part of, and there are other observatories coming that are going to be more exoplanet focused, but it's going to be able to do some amazing stuff for exoplanet research um, and increase our understanding, including like looking in the atmospheres of these planets to get a better idea of uh, what kind of planet they are beyond just intuiting it from them covering up their star when they go by. Wild stuff. Yeah, yeah. So um, the other images that the JWST release uh, came out with, so there, there's, so we talked about the spectrum and we talked about the deep field. There's the Southern Ring Nebula, which is just a pretty, you know, it's a pretty planetary nebula for those who are not the you know where where stellar evolution isn't your isn't your thing. A planetary nebula, despite its name, isn't really about a planet. It is a uh, a star going off the main sequence and kind of sloughing off the gas uh, of its envelope, and so it kind of puffs out and it makes these um, amazing, beautiful uh, gas blobs. Mm -hmm. And so this one we see from top down, essentially, or bottom up, depending on how you think of it. And so we're we're kind of looking directly at the star or in this case actually stars at the center of the system and then we can see this ring that's basically these radiating gas blobs that are coming out of this dying star um, which is all beautiful and impressive and the detail and this is an infrared telescope remember and they look at different wavelengths so they have ones where they can just highlight the dust and they can see through the dust and they can like they can see so much about it and the very impressive one is that one wavelength it's uh, one of these shots you very clearly can see the two stars that yeah. are at the center of this and that's amazing right it that's is. the that's the fact because there's a there's a the brighter star is the one that's not off the main sequence yet it still has its gas together and then the other it's, one it's, is it's, its neighbors gone off the deep end <laughs> it's falling apart yeah yeah so uh that you can see that level of detail and again Again, this, the astronomers can can look at this and they're like, oh my God, let me tell you about the, the dust lanes. And in this image, you can see that. And they're going to get huge amounts of science out of this. But what's beautiful about space telescopes is they also know to process the images so that people like us can look and go, whoa, look at that. Mm -hmm. And that's part of that's part of it, too. So it's a, it's very cool to, to see the, the uh, detail of uh, what is a beautiful object, but like in so much more detail and helping us understand it better. Love it. Yeah, and this is something that I think is is neat as our technology and our ability to observe evolves over time. Like we've known a lot about the sequence of the lifetime of a star, but getting these new images where we can peer through these clouds, peer through this dust, gives us a, an even better understanding of how these processes take place. And so we're going to be able to fill in with even more detail these things that we know about the universe, but there are gaps in our knowledge. And, mm -hmm. you know, something like this, where you see a typical image just shows one star, but really we see two. Uh, yes, it's mind-blowing, but uh, something else to remember about these images that it's it's in this field of these little dots of light, and they are all their own galaxies as well. So James Webb also brings with it, these images bring with them 
uh, a context to, for, for me at least, of how how much there is to explore, right? There, like there's there's a um, oh I forget what it's called now. Uh, somebody had a hypothesis a while ago that was if if the Big Bang really existed, why is space dark? And the question was theoretically, if there was all that light, then we should be able to see it. And the and we don't. Space is dark. And the answer turns out to be universe expands. Everything gets redshifted. It actually is there, but it's all the way down in the microwave band, and that's what the cosmic microwave background radiation mm-hmm. is. It is not dark. It's just dark to our human eyes. What these, which again infrared, but what what the all of these pictures show is, and the deep field shows it. The next one we're going to talk about, the Stefan's Quintet shows it is the universe isn't dark, right? Like if you can look in any direction, in any depth, you will run into not just a star, you will run into galaxy after galaxy after galaxy going off to the beginning of the universe. And that, that so it's proving the point that you need the right um, vision to see that the universe is not dark, that there's stuff in every direction. And in fact, one of the great things that I think is going to become a recurring theme of the JWST is photobombing galaxies <laughs> where you're like, oh yeah, we imaged this thing. And then in the background, there's just like galaxy, 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 endless, because it's so attuned uh, to those frequencies. And it's so good at generating imagery that you're going to have um these images that are about the stuff in the foreground and you're like, and then also there's this amazing galaxy that we've never seen before back in the background that we didn't even know was there. Um, That's just incredible. Absolutely. So let's talk about this quintet image. I don't know who Stefan is. I could look it up, but I'm not gonna. Uh, But Stefan has this quintet of galaxies. So five galaxies, one of which is in the foreground. The one on the left is in the foreground uh, by several hundred light years, I think. But the other four are actually uh, gravitationally uh, influencing each other and they're in the same vicinity. And this image that is released is a composite of about a thousand separate files. So I'll get Mm. sent back to Earth and all stitched together. Um, And this is a uh, a group of galaxies that are, uh, there's merging and interaction happening between them. But the thing that caught my eye the second I saw it is you can see an outflow from the one on the top, like this this stream of dust and gas streaming off to the left as you look at the image. And that is evidence of uh, a nearby black hole pulling a material. Oh, interesting. Wild. The um you get with these with these images, you end up with um First off, you get a lot of the the haze is actually, you know, it's dust and gas and stars, right? Like there's yeah. streams of stars that that form as these galaxies interact and the two in the center that are doing obviously a much greater kind of dance around each other. You know, they're interacting. And as we know, like galaxy collisions seem terrible, but stars very rarely collide with each other. What they do, though, is they gravitationally influence each other and the galaxies kind of pull apart and form new shapes. And what you see around those two galaxies in the center that are doing that dance is that there's this there's a couple of arcs um, of kind of red material that's star forming regions where the gas and dust and matter that's hanging around those galaxies 
was not really doing anything until they stirred one another up, at which point that dust and gas gets flung uh, together mm-hmm. and then starts to form stars. And so you end up with star formations happening around it as well. Um, and that just just that dance that these are galaxies. These are not, uh, you know, these are not clouds. <laughs> they are, they look cloudy because they are full of stars and dust and gas. And, uh, and they're interacting with each other and making these long trails. And keep in mind, these are galaxies. So it's, we're talking the scale here is not like a few light years either. The scale here is massive, <laughs> enormous. Uh, but that even on that scale, they are all interacting and all affecting each other very, 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 very slowly. But they are doing it. Yeah, you mentioned areas where stars are born, and I think, I think is the most the most breathtaking image is the cosmic cliffs image. Ah, uh, the Car- the Carina Nebula. Yes. Yeah, that's the, the the last one. Again, playing Hubble's greatest hits a little bit, and then yeah. trying to outdo Hubble. But I think for people who have anybody who's paid attention to these images uh, from uh, you know from space, and especially from the space telescope uh, back in the day with Hubble, I think it's smart of them to say. Um, this is where we start our journey with this mm-hmm. telescope is the stuff that you remember and may and being able to see more of it. And, and so in the Carina Nebula, obviously this is the you know birthplace of stars and you, you know, the stars are being born and blowing away some of the gas around them. And then the, you have these things that look like cliffs or I always thought of them like, like waves or something like that. Yeah, yeah me too. But they're seven light years high. <laughs> That's isn't that mind blowing? I mean, the scale of this is yeah. is incredible, and yet it's just a, a pinprick of light, you know, from any other vantage point. It, it's it's just I mean, it's again a beautiful image, and then also when you start to think about you're watching uh, a, a nursery essentially of uh, stars that are being born. And then uh, blowing away the gas around them because all stars form from, you know, from a collection of gas. They form from places like this. Uh, you know, lots of stars form because you've got a big gassy area and then the gas starts to collect. And and then eventually it kind of forms a star. And then whatever gas is just still kind of floating around gets burned right off by that star. And you end up uh, with a, uh, a main sequence star that is now going to live its life and has planets around it and the whole thing. And so to see it. You know, images are powerful, right? Seeing seeing something instead of just being told this is a thing that happens, it makes a difference. It does. So this is the start. This is just the start. This is just the, like, first five. Uh, they already did that thing about, like, hey, we think we found the oldest galaxy ever. And then a week later, actually, you could tell. I don't know if you do this, but I, I, I notice sometimes when people are talking about it that they obviously are embargoed on something that hasn't been published yet. Because I saw somebody say, oh, yeah, they think they found the oldest galaxy that we've ever seen um, until until probably another one comes along. And I'm like, right. hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And a week later, they're like, yeah, we found another one. <laughs> just keeps happening. Uh, and it's going to... And this is just... The beauty of it is that this is the this is the big bang that starts this process, but now it's like the science continues. So we're going to get wild images and great discoveries and all sorts of bizarre and fun and cool stuff about the universe for the, you know, the life of the JWST, which will hopefully be, you know, 
a decade at least. So mm-hmm. um, it's it's great. We we talked about this for the entire run of Liftoff. It's been going on so long that it was named by Sean O'Keefe, right? I mean, there's a controversy about naming it after James Webb. Uh, we're not going to get into here, but Sean O'Keefe just decided he was going to do that. Well, Sean O'Keefe was the NASA administrator in the Bush administration. So been a minute. It's been a while. That's what I'm saying. It's been a while, but it's here now. It's up and running, and it just shows you um, what the humans of Earth can do when they put their mind to it. Speaking of putting our mind to things, oh, it is now time for the SLS segment. <gasps> oh, let me see if I can remember it. Space launch system segment explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. SLS segment. SLS segment. 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 We last left our friend <laughs> wondering what the future of the wet dress rehearsal was going to be. Ah. And uh, that first one failed. They rolled, it, they rolled it back into the vehicle assembly building. We actually spoke about that on the last kind of check-in episode we did. Uh, in the time since, I'm sure people saw they had a second uh, wet test that was mostly successful they had some issues crop up but it was like they deemed it successful and they're just fixing some stuff back in the vehicle assembly building but we have three possible launch windows yeah yeah they're talking about launch windows how about that wild so the first one see the day (laughs) i know the first one is august 29th Uh, that would land on october 10th we have september 2nd through uh, October 11th, uh, the 11th being the uh, landing. The launch windows themselves are very short. They're only two-hour launch windows. And then the third one is September 5th, landing on October 17th, or or splashing down, I should say. So this is, so just to be clear, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about what is officially Artemis 1, which is the first flight of the SLS and the orion capsule on the top and when you say returning so much later the reason is they're doing a free return around the moon that's part of this whole thing is they want to take the whole stack launch it to the moon around the moon and then back to earth and then splash down as if there were people inside even though there won't be for this test that's right and the uh yeah it would be the first flight of the SLS. Uh, the capsule itself has has flown. Orion has flown, but this is the the mating of the two, and of course, uncrewed as it should be on this initial launch. So right now, the launch vehicle is back in the vehicle assembly building. They are dealing with some of the issues that came up in the dress rehearsal. There were some seals on a quick disconnect uh, of the umbilical that basically attaches it to the ground. Some of that was present also in the first test and kind of cropped up again. So they're, they're continuing to work on that and they'll, they'll be able to do testing of that within the, the building itself. So they don't have to roll it like all the way back out to the launch pad just to test these systems. Um, and they're installing the flight batteries. So the, the actual, the actual batteries that will be on board to power Orion once it's, uh, once it's off the ground. And some of that also is the batteries in the SLS itself for like it's a short journey, <laughs> one way journey. Cause it's not reusable. So really getting flight hardware in there and, you know, we'll see if they make uh, August or early September. I surely hope so. I would love to, to see this thing fly and, and whenever they do it, I'm sure we'll do 
Uh, maybe we'll do a live stream like we did for the Falcon Heavy, but it is inching ever closer. I mean, uh, it is really exciting. You know, for all the for all the shade we've thrown on this rocket, it is really exciting and fun to be talking about launch windows finally. I need to correct something, real time correction. Okay, which is which is I believe, although they originally were going to do a free return, the plan is actually now to do a lunar orbit injection. Okay. And then return. So just adding some more bonus, like a, a you know retrograde orbit, uh, and then returning, so that there's actually a, uh, uh, I think another burn. But we'll we'll as it gets closer. I mean, it, we'll we'll find out. But it's a cool it's a cool idea, and they're gonna send that thing. You know, when it goes up there, it's gonna be up there for, um, like five weeks i think mm -hmm. it's like a long it's a long time that they're that they're doing this so if they can get the sls to get the capsule up there then we get to you know test out some other parts of artemis which is also kind of fun so it might happen if we will i mean we'll be back for that let's Definitely. just say it okay right Stephen? like yeah. we'll, we'll this is on our list of things that will bring liftoff back jwst original images here we are hi sls launch yeah, you bet. You bet. We'll absolutely do that. That'll be quite a thing if and when it happens. Before we go, we have one more news topic that oh we should boy. talk about. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, when we last left the liftoff program, Russia and its uh, very weird uh, head of space, uh, Dmitry Rogozin, were posturing about... Uh, the invasion of Ukraine and saying, oh, we don't need you and we'll, we'll just leave the ISS and you, you can't live without us and all of those things. Story in the last couple of weeks, there's a new boss at the Russian Space Agency, Yuri Borisov, and he basically said, well, we're going to we're going to leave the ISS. And the initial reports were like, Russia says it'll leave the ISS by 2024. You're like, OK, right. And then it was like. Russia says it will leave the ISS, but it wants to have its own thing going uh, before it does. At which point, everybody's like, well, wait a second. Because, like, they're not going to have their own thing going, <laughs> right? Like, that's the reality that nobody in Russia wants to talk about, is that the Russian space program basically is poorly funded and, and doesn't have anything. Yeah, let alone in two years. <laughs> yeah, so unless they're just going to sign up with the Chinese uh, space program and say, we're going we're gonna to take our ball and go over to the Chinese space station, which they could do. Mm-hmm. As we record this, the booster that just sent the second module of the Chinese space station is, there's a, definitely a very, very small chance that it will land on my house. That's cool. Later today. So that'll be great. Uh, that What a way to go, though. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, uh, you know so, what? If you get killed by a falling Chinese rocket, I will do an episode liftoff in okay. your Thank you. In my memory. Thank you. That would be great. So, so okay, they announced this. They don't really warn anybody. It's really unclear. They say they're going to do, uh, uh, what is it, the Russian Orbital Service Station? Yep. Um, I would call my space station Ross if I could, right? Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, he obviously the best of the friends. It. Is he? <laughs> no. He's not. Well, if you name your space station after him, you absolutely think he's the best of the friends, right? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We all know it's Phoebe. Uh, so the the nobody knows what's going on. Um, I think it's safe to say that all the other ISS partners are having a conversation now about what would be required if Russia abandoned the space station. I, I can't decide whether they really mean this or whether this is just more face saving. If they want to force NASA to 
and the other partners to do something like pay because remember they're not getting paid for rides in the Soyuz anymore so they've lost a, a big cash infusion wonder if they might actually like say well if you pay us we'll we'll keep it up and try to get some money out of everybody else that way uh russia u.s segment is is in charge of power for the station russia's segment does station keeping so they have rockets that are attached to the russian part of the station and when they're not misfiring <laughs> when, they're, making, say, when they're not doing a slow backflip <laughs> when they're yeah doing loop-de-loops uh they can they boost the orbit to keep it from decaying right uh, and and the and the end of the ISS, the idea is you do a controlled reentry, unlike that Chinese rocket, and you need thrust for that. Elon Musk has said that they could probably use a, a dragon to do that. I think ULA has talked about it. Boeing has talked about it. Like there yeah, are probably there's been talk of the of the Cygnus being used to, for that sort of thing. Yeah. So there's there there are probably solutions. And then there's a question of like, do you keep the Russian segment or do you di- you know do you disconnect it? And is that even possible? And there are so many questions. So we don't know. I mean, I feel like when we started liftoff, we didn't really know what the end game was for the ISS. It's like, oh, it's the ISS. It's just going to go forever. We're waiting for commercial crew. That's what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Now it seems like it's. it became clear in the last couple of years. The end game for the ISS is probably 2030. And they're hoping that there will be commercial space stations going up by then. If there aren't, we may end up in another one of those gaps where we have the ability to send commercial crew capsules into space, but there's nowhere for them to go, maybe. <laughs> we'll see. But... Um, but the Russian involvement in the space station is an open question at this point, and um, nobody really knows what's going to happen there. But like I said, I think the smart people at the ISS who, uh, you know, in the ISS partnership have probably already spent and are continuing to spend a lot of brain cycles thinking, um, what do we do if Russia basically says, you know, buy everybody and takes off? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a mess. And I think that initial reporting, like it, it was out of a an article out of Russia and it was very unclear. But either way, I think you're right. I think the end game is is approaching and how far beyond 2030 it can go is is unknown. I mean, that's already an extension on top of an extension. But if if Russia does pull out it definitely leads to a lot of a lot of questions and and trying to understand what it would look like moving forward without them is a, is a complicated thing and I, and i'm sure somewhere deep within you know the us government there are there have been plans for what happens but it is is definitely something to keep an eye on and that this this new boss they have you know i think people were briefly hopeful for like a massively different attitude but i don't i don't think i, I think he's going to be less antagonistic but I still think that their reality is just has caught up with them. That with the funding and everything else, they're just not able to do what they say they're going to do. Yeah, I I keep seeing people speculate that the end game for the Russian space program really is that they're going to have to just, uh, and they may even be headed that way right now in terms of building a narrative, is basically saying our new partner is China. And the truth is probably going to be that they're going to have to big China to let them be a part of it because the once mighty Russian space program has really been misfunded and mismanaged and is in disarray. But as long as it's important to Putin, essentially, they will do what they what they need to do. But it, it, it seems like they are uh, given what happened with uh, with the invasion of Ukraine, they 
need to pivot <laughs> to to perhaps the the Chinese space station. So I think they're keeping their options open and figuring out the best path forward for them. But um, so are the rest of the ISS partners. And uh, and they'll figure it out. And we'll come back. If the ISS decides to shut down, we'll also come back. For the <laughs> just, just if they detach the Russian part and say, see you suckers, yeah. we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get back on that. You break up in, in low Earth orbit, you know? It's like a sad relationship song. It's not song. good. Yeah, it'd be a Death Cat for Cutie song, right? Something it would be. <laughs> about break up in low Earth orbit. Uh, before we get off the ISS and before we wrap up this special episode of Liftoff, they're all special now, by the way. They're just they are special uh so we were talking about the iss i want to mention one of our listeners and uh fans and a former guest on the show jeff morris who worked at the uh nasa nasa marshall space flight center in huntsville alabama so he was a guest on episode 12 talking about what he did as a payload guy talking to the stuff that the all the equipment up at the iss so jeff passed away recently and um, I heard about it from his wife, and I was able to send the link to that episode, and and which she was grateful for, um, because, you know, I, I thought here's your husband talking about a thing that he that he loved to do, and he really did love working in space and working on the ISS. So, our, our best wishes to Jeff Morris's friends and family, and and uh, we were grateful to get that chance to talk to him back in 2016. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if that does it. We did it. Yep, that's it. We'll, we'll be back who knows when. Maybe uh, SLS? SLS? Would could that be. be the bet? Could be. Yeah. Could be. Could be like a month. It could, oh, man, imagine. And then, I mean, we know there's a, in December, there's a, an Apollo, our last Apollo mission. Is coming mm-hmm. up too. Although we may we may have to, we may have to do Apollo Soyuz too. I think to we should. That. And there's some like Apollo uh, applied platform stuff that's pretty oh, wild. We can be in. Let's get into the Skylab, Stephen. Man, oh Skylab. Woo! That's something. All right. Lots of reasons for us to be back. Again, this podcast isn't dead. It is only hibernating. And then it emerges from time to time. And it's very hungry. That's right. When it does so. That's right. So we'll be back for episode 170 in an undetermined time because we are now an occasional podcast. But that's it for now. That's it. If you want to find links to stuff we spoke about, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 169. You can find Jason on Twitter as jsnell. And you can follow me there as ismh. And until next time, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, y'all.